Due to the nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, rape, assault, and mutilation. It also includes sounds of gunfire. Consider this when deciding how and when you'll listen. In 1923, a fancy touring car rolled through the town of Peral, Mexico. Inside were a few guards and a controversial figure named Pancho Villa. Villa was known as a brutal general, one of the few who'd survived the Mexican Revolution. To some, he was a hero, to others, a villain. Now, though, he was retired, and he lived his life in peace, away from the action. Or at least, that's what he thought. That day, a group of grizzled men stood outside the town car dealership. They watched Via roll past, their various resentments seething. Some lost family members to him, others girlfriends or friends. Via had survived the war richer than when he started it. He was no man of the people. He needed to face justice. As they stared, one finally said aloud what they were all thinking. He asked if anyone would have the courage to take Via down, to quote, let him have it. The wind drifted between the men as the challenge hung in the air. Then a broad-shouldered statesman who'd fought alongside Via during the war broke the silence. His name was Jesus Salas Barasa. He'd get the job done. A few months later, Villa was gunned down in the middle of that same square by a mysterious group of assassins. And despite all the evidence, no one would ever be held responsible for the murder. Perhaps Barasa knew. Kill someone in government and you walk to the gallows. But kill the enemy of the government and you walk free. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify podcast. Every Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify podcasts for free on Spotify. Today, we're covering the assassination of Pancho Villa. The Mexican revolutionary was a complex figure. To some, he was a hero, a man of the people. But to others, he was a brutal and merciless outlaw. In this one-part episode, we'll dig into Pancho Villa's legacy, his final days, and two conspiracy theories about his demise. First, we'll consider whether the Mexican government orchestrated his murder and let another man take the fall. Second, we'll examine whether Villa's head, which was stolen from his grave, ended up in the hands of an American secret society. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. 
But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. When war comes, the first casualty is truth. This is what California U.S. Senator Hiram Johnson said during a 1918 speech. And nowhere was this more apparent than during the Mexican Revolution, which had just ended the year before. The conflict tore Mexico apart, but gave rise to one of the most legendary figures in the country's history, Pancho Villa. Villa was born in 1878. According to his memoir, his father died when Villa was young, so he took over as the head of the household. He worked as a sharecropper on a hacienda, supporting his mother and three siblings. However, at age 16, his world was upended when the owner of the hacienda raped his younger sister. Villa took revenge. He grabbed a pistol shot the man, and fled into the mountains, where he joined a group of bandits. He was branded a fugitive. But this sparked a purpose in Villa. He now knew it was his life's mission to fight against the aristocracy. Over the years, he cobbled together a gang of desperados, some of the most skilled horsemen in Mexico. To the rich, he and his men were a menace to society, pilfering train cars and stealing their cattle. But to the destitute, he was a saint who often shared his spoils. 
he set up schools for struggling children. There were even rumors he built a butcher shop to redistribute meat taken from the bourgeoisie. Stealing from the rich and giving to the poor. Villa was Mexico's Robin Hood. His notoriety grew in 1911 when a political revolutionary asked for Villa's help. He wanted to overthrow the strict authoritarian president, a man seen as a pawn of the aristocracy. Looking out for the lower class, Villa joined the fight along with other gang leaders and generals. The coup was successful, but the leaders that remained didn't see eye to eye. Instead, it was more like barrel to barrel. The only thing that had united the blocs was their shared hatred of the former dictator. So after the president's ousting, the Mexican Revolution began. A bloody series of pitched battles dragged out for a full decade, everyone vying for control. Over a million fighters lost their lives, many of them equipped with 20th century weapons, but only 19th century armor. After all, simple hats didn't stand up well to machine guns. Still, it was during those 10 years that Pancho Villa went from bandit to warlord, complete with his own loyal army. They were known as the Villistas. In 1916, Villa stormed the town of Columbus, New Mexico, as retaliation for the United States backing a rival general. The attack was devastating. He torched the city and killed 18 of its citizens. Villa was seen by many as a man of the people and defender of the country. But he had a much darker side. Time magazine reported that, according to legend, the general could, quote, march 100 miles without stopping, live 100 days without food, go 100 nights without sleep, and kill 100 men without remorse. Villa and his men could be brutal and unpredictable even to the working class. According to his biographer, Friedrich Katz, he forced men to join his army and threatened to execute their families if they refused. His treatment of women was also distasteful, to say the least. Villa was a womanizer for sure. He had many wives. When he conquered a town, he'd seduce a new woman and whisk her away for an impromptu wedding. However, when he inevitably left for the next town, he saw to it that the woman and any children he fathered with her were financially taken care of. Well, we can't know definitively, it's possible some of those marriages weren't even consensual. After all, when a man accused a villista of sexually assaulting his wife, he was shot in the knees. From the Americans to rival politicians to the families of spurned wives, a lot of people wanted Villa dead. One of them was a fellow revolutionary named Jesus Salas Barasa. He was a state senator who, according to rumor, once fought Villa over a woman. But as the story goes, instead of using his fists, Villa whipped out his gun and pistol-whipped Barasa. And he probably took the girl, too. During one of his raids, Villa even destroyed an electric plant in the senator's district. The reckless action put thousands out of work and killed an employee whom Barraza loved like a brother. He never forgot or forgave. Still, no matter how many enemies Villa made, it seemed no one could take him down. 
Even when he was presumed dead at a battle he'd lost, he re-emerged months later. He'd been quietly convalescing in a cave. In 1920, his biggest rival, a former schoolteacher and chickpea farmer named Álvaro Obregón, took the presidency. Obregón and Villa had crossed paths many times in battle and were probably the two most capable generals. But in the end, Obregón won the war. In the aftermath, the men worked out a deal. As long as Villa stayed out of politics, he'd be pardoned. He'd also receive a ranch, 50 guards, and full pay as a war general to live out his life in peace. Villa surrendered, eased into retirement, and over time warmed up to Obregón. But no matter how good things seemed, the president never let his guard down. He always kept an eye on his old rival to the north. A few years into his retirement, Villa drove to the nearby town of Peral to attend a baptism. He often traveled with dozens of men, but considering the expenses, this time he only took four. Plus, the town of Peral usually had hundreds of federal troops stationed there, and Villa was friends with their commander. He figured, what could go wrong? Well, on July 20th, 1923, Villa was headed back home. He and his guards took their seats in his car with Via at the wheel. He was in a good mood that day, joking as he puffed a corn-shucked cigarette. But that morning, Peral was a ghost town. The chief and the garrison had been called to a neighboring town to practice for an upcoming military parade, which meant Via was vulnerable. Via's car approached a corner at the edge of town. As he slowed, a pumpkin seed vendor stepped into the street and raised his sombrero, as if to greet him. But the man wasn't there to salute. He'd been paid to wait until Via passed through. The hat raise was a signal to begin shooting. A barrage of gunfire erupted from the windows of a nearby apartment. The hail of bullets tore into Via's car. He tried to escape, but hit a curb, sending the vehicle to a halt. Meanwhile, the assassins continued firing. Two of Via's men were killed instantly. The others managed to escape. As for Via, he took the brunt of the bullets since he was in the driver's seat, nine in total. According to Texas Monthly, as the dust settled, an unassuming man in a straw hat supposedly walked up to the car and surveyed the carnage. Allegedly, he drew his pistol and shot Via in the head one last time, just to be sure. Mysteriously, the telegraph lines in and out of town were cut, so it took hours for people to learn the news about Via's death. Meanwhile, the squad of gunmen got away, and their identities remained a mystery. Afterwards, the attack on Via was shrouded in questions. Some kept hoping he'd emerge from the ashes and ride again. Many were skeptical over how things unfolded. It seemed impossible that seven men could take out one of the most indomitable fighters Mexico had ever seen. Unless, of course, they had some help. Coming up, the secret government plot to get rid of Pancho Villa. 
This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. Pancho Villa, a general and what some called a man of the people, had survived the Mexican Revolution. Plus, he'd secured a peace deal with his longtime enemy, President Álvaro Obregón. But in 1923, he was gunned down in the streets of Parral, Mexico, at the age of 45, by a group of mysterious assassins. The whole country wanted to know who was behind the execution. A few days later, just as suspicion started to fall on Obregón, someone came forward. It was Jesus Salas Barraza, the state senator who'd been pistol-whipped by Villa after a fight over a woman. In a letter to the Obregón administration, he admitted to orchestrating the murder. He claimed it was an act of revenge for the thousands of people Villa had wronged. Barraza called the general a, quote, bloody soul born from evil. In his mind, he'd done Mexico a favor. It seemed like an open and shut case. Barasa was found guilty and sentenced to two decades in prison. But he was suspiciously pardoned by the government only three months in. As far as justice goes, that was it. Pancho Villa's biographer, Friedrich Katz, wrote, No one else was ever accused, arrested, or detained for the murder of Villa. To many, Barasa's quick pardon was a giant red flag. Many wondered if it was all part of a bigger plan. Which brings us to our first conspiracy theory. Pancho Villa's execution went all the way up to Obregón himself. After Villa died, there were many questions about who could have been behind his execution plot. Barasa's confession also seemed a little sketchy, especially since the murder seemed too complex to be a one-man job. But as decades passed, reporters uncovered an intricate web detailing what may have really happened. And it seemed to start with a man named Meliton Lasoya. Remember, when the revolution ended, Obregón gave Villa a nice ranch where he could live out his days. It was a truce of sorts. The Conatillo Hacienda, as it was called, sat on a vast 163,000 acres. But it came with some baggage. Like the guy who ran the place, Meliton Lasoya. According to Friedrich Katz, Villa's biographer, Lasoya was extraordinarily corrupt. While he was in charge of the hacienda, he'd sold off a bunch of the property to line his own pockets. So, picture Pancho Villa. He's been given this farmhouse as a way to put his grievances to bed for good, only to find out that Lasoya had stolen large swaths of it. And Villa wasn't known for his forgiveness. He was the patron saint of revenge. So the former general threatened Lasoya to pay back what he owed, or else. 
The problem was Lasoya didn't have the money, so he probably figured, whatever Via is going to do to me, I've got to do to him first. Now, here's what we know for sure. On January 23rd, 1923, seven and a half months before Via's death, Lasoya asked to discuss some matters with Obregón. The request was cryptic. Usually, when asking for an audience with the president, you'd at least say what it's for. Then again, if you're planning to ask the leader of the country for help killing his greatest rival, you probably wouldn't put that in writing. That's true. But at first glance, it didn't seem like there was any reason for the president to conspire with Lasoya. His bygones with Via were bygones. But a bullet in Via's brain was looking more and more desirable for Obregón for several reasons. One, it was the year before an election and an uprising was brewing. Obregón and his generals worried Via would join the rebellion once again, and they didn't want a sequel to the decade-long revolution. Two, Obregón was working on a business agreement with the United States, one that would help legitimize his government in the eyes of Americans. And the U.S. wasn't the biggest fan of Villa, considering he invaded the nation during the war. Ultimately, Villa could have been a problem for Obregón again. Katz wrote there were unconfirmed accusations that Mexican officials believed the sooner they got rid of Villa, the sooner the deal could be put in place. According to Katz, Obregón may have been reluctant to get involved at first. Villa had, so far, remained out of trouble and kept to the terms of their agreement. But perhaps Obregón's successor, a shrewd progressive politician named Elias Callas, pushed him on the matter. Feeling the mounting pressure, Obregón may have okayed the operation, as long as they made sure the trail never led back to him. See, Obregón was strategic. He knew that without a fall guy, everyone would blame Villa's death on him. And that's where Barasa comes into play. The story goes that at some point, probably in 1922 or 23, Lasoya recruited eight men with personal grievances, men who wanted vengeance on Villa. One of them happened to be Barasa. The politician supposedly agreed to take the fall to keep suspicion off his president. He was willing to sacrifice himself to rid the world of Villa, a man he considered a monster. But let's be clear, he wasn't trying to go to jail. He believed his status as a state senator would give him immunity. He probably figured, at the very least, he'd be pardoned. So, according to the theory, the plan was set. Villa would be mowed down in Peral by Lasoya's men, Barasa would claim responsibility, and the government would come to his rescue. It was time for action. Katz wrote that with Obregón's blessing, his successor, Elias Callas, sent 50,000 pesos to the head of the Peral garrison. He wanted to ensure they were out of town on the day of the murder. Allegedly, the Peral commander even added his best marksman to Lasoya's hit squad. On July 20th, 1923, they supposedly cut the telegraph lines. Nothing was getting in or out. 
Via was then slaughtered by the seven or so assassins. Because the troops were in the next town over, nobody pursued the gunman for at least 45 minutes after the execution. Witnesses said that after the shootout, the assassins, quote, quietly lit cigarettes. They laughed and rejoiced. They calmly took hold of their horses, and at a slow gait, they left town. There was another eyewitness report that seemed to confirm this plot. Supposedly, that night, Barasa and the hit squad went on a bender through Peral. At a bar, they openly boasted about the kill. Probably because they felt invincible, especially if they had the president on their side. Look, so many powerful people had grievances with Via that makes it hard to pin down who might have been to blame. The plan seemed to come from Lasoya, but there were also letters from Barasa to government officials thanking them for their help. So it seems the plot could have reached the highest levels of government after all. Even Via's biographer Friedrich Katz wrote, There can, on the whole, be little doubt that the Mexican government was not only implicated in, but probably organized the assassination of Via. It tracks. As we mentioned, Obregón had plenty of reasons to take out his rival, despite the truce, like the impending uprising, for instance. Removing Villa made it easier for the U.S. to recognize and do business with the Obregón administration. Well, then, hey, all the better. To me, it seems like this theory is the most probable. I really don't think Barasa worked alone. I have to agree, but the mysteries surrounding Villa's death don't end there. Sadly, the legendary general was only given a hasty burial at a local cemetery. Three years later, Villa's grave was desecrated. A robber cracked open his casket and stole the head from Pancho Villa's body. Now, some believe the skull is located in the United States. And Mexico wants America to give it back. Coming up... Via's remains may be in the hands of a Yale secret society. Now, back to the story. In 1923, the indomitable revolutionary Pancho Villa was slain at the hands of assassins. In the aftermath, he was unceremoniously put to rest at a cemetery in Peral, Mexico. Three years after Villa's death, a graveyard caretaker was patrolling the cemetery grounds when he came across something that sent a chill down his spine. Villa's coffin had been dug up in the night. Even worse, his body had been decapitated. So why would someone want to strip Villa's head from his body? Well, as always, there were theories. Some wondered if President Obregón wanted the skull for himself, perhaps as a trophy. There were also rumors that American scientists wanted to forensically examine Villa's brain to learn more from his military genius. Others went as far as to say his scalp displayed a tattoo of a map, one treasure hunters could use to find gold. But to us, the most intriguing idea, and the only one that really has legs, is our second conspiracy theory, that Pancho Villa's skull was sold to Yale's famed Skull and Bone Society, and it remains tucked away within the bowels of the campus to this day. 
founded in 1832, the infamous Order of the Skull and Bones is shrouded in confidentiality. If you're a regular to this show, you probably know the organization's headquarters, known as the Tomb, is located on the Yale University campus. And its roster features some famous names, from actor Paul Giamatti to former Secretary of State John Kerry. But its most notable are probably those of the Bush family, from former President George W., his father, the 41st President George Bush, all the way back to the family patriarch, Prescott Sheldon Bush. Prescott was a leading member of the order, and he may have developed a proclivity for its namesake, particularly the skulls part. Apparently, initiates are required to dig up the skull of a famous person to bring it to the tomb. Then they're exhibited in a special shrine. It sounds crazy, but the society's records suggest Prescott Bush was part of this practice. He allegedly stole the head of the Apache chief Geronimo from its burial grounds and displayed it at the headquarters along with a few other relics. In fact, Alexandra Robbins, author of one of the only exposés on the secret society, said, quote, Deep within the bowels of the tomb are the stolen skulls of the Apache chief Geronimo, Pancho Villa, and former president Martin Van Buren. The order, of course, denies this. Well, in 1987, an El Paso history buff went on a quest to retrieve Villa's head and return it to its rightful place in Mexico. But as he began his search, he got a mocking email from an anonymous member of the Skull and Bone Society. It said, quote, We don't have it, but if you can prove we have it, we'll give it to you. To unravel this theory, let's go back to 1926, just days after Via's tomb was desecrated, and see if we can trace the chain of events back to the order. Mexican authorities' first suspect in the grave robbing case was Villa's self-proclaimed assassin, Jesus Salas Barraza. He'd just been released from jail, but since he'd been under close watch, he was ruled out as a suspect. After poking around, officials learned of a Swedish-American adventurer and treasure hunter named Emil Louis Homdahl. Homdahl was in his early 40s and had fought alongside Villa during the war. Coincidentally, he was spotted in Peral right before the incident, allegedly asking locals where Villa's grave was located. Homdahl was arrested the day after the crime. When authorities raided his hotel room, they found a bloody axe, and in his car, a bottle of what seemed like embalming fluid to preserve the remains. But they couldn't find Villa's head. Supposedly, an Arizona rancher and businessman named Ben F. Williams was in Peral on a sales trip during this time. According to his biographer, Teresa Williams Irvin, Williams had heard about Holmdahl's arrest. He happened to be a friend of his, so he visited him in jail. According to Williams, the adventurer was usually charming, but after three days in a tiny dark room, Holmdahl was understandably a nervous wreck. In a hushed voice, Williams asked his friend if he'd truly stolen the head of Mexico's former revolutionary. The treasure hunter replied, saying, quote, Hell no, the whole thing is ridiculous. And Williams felt like he was telling the truth. 
When Peral authorities asked Holmdahl about the axe, he nervously said he'd slaughtered an animal with it the night before. When they presented him with the bottle of formaldehyde in his room, he grasped the bottle in his fist and drained it in three gulps to show they were mistaken. Apparently, it was sterilized water meant to offset all the tequila he'd been drinking. On top of that, the adventurer had an alibi. Around the time of the robbery, Holmdahl was drinking at a local cantina, El Club Minero. So, Holmdahl was released. Soon after, he skipped town and disappeared. Williams had no idea where his friend went. Until a month and a half later, when Williams visited the El Paso Club in Texas. To his surprise, there was his friend. At a corner table over a bottle of contraband whiskey, Holmdahl said, quote, Ben, I have a confession to make. According to Williams, Holmdahl admitted he'd lied. Not only had he stolen Pancho Villa's head, but he was also paid 25 grand for the job. Williams left the meeting shocked. That wasn't the last of Emil Holmdahl. A year later, he and some friends were on a four-day bender at another hotel in El Paso. According to a colleague, on the fifth morning, Holmdahl strode into his room with a bottle of Cuervo and a package wrapped in newspaper. He said, I got something to show you guys. Then he unfurled the papers. Pancho Villa's head supposedly rolled onto the mattress. One of the supposed witnesses wrote, it turned over a couple times on the bed and came to rest where it seemed to have one eye, that is, socket, leering at my partner. I'll never forget the look of frozen horror on his face. With both of these accounts, it seems Holmdahl could have been guilty of the beheading after all. But even more interesting is who he may have done it for. And as you may have expected, this is what leads us back to Yale University. Legend has it that 45 years after Villa's disturbing beheading, Williams visited Frank Brophy, a personal friend and Yale alumni. On the wall of Brophy's office was a plaque with an insignia, the Skull and Bones Society. Williams asked about the order, and his friends seemed all too excited to boast about their private collection. Brophy told him that decades before, he and five of his brothers cobbled together $5,000 each to buy the skull of Pancho Villa, likely as part of the initiation rite. It was kept as a relic at the society's headquarters in Yale. If you're doing the math, that's $25,000. The exact amount Holmdahl said he'd sold it for. Now, there's no record that Brophy was a bonesman, but he did have pretty close connections to a leading member of the order, Prescott Bush. So perhaps his account can be trusted. Maybe Holmdahl did steal Via's head to sell it to the Skull and Bones after all. This is a lot to unravel. We know for sure that Emil Holmdahl was taken in as a suspect in Pancho Via's beheading, but there's nothing that proves he ever possessed the skull. You'll recall he was actually released over lack of evidence. When it comes to Ben F. Williams' biography, a writer from The New Yorker called it, quote, 
a cowhide-bound vanity press as told-to memoir, meaning it wasn't worthy of a Pulitzer Prize. But he wasn't the only one who wrote about the Holmdahl Skull and Bones connection. In her book, Secrets of the Tomb, The Ivy League, and the Hidden Paths of Power, researcher Alexandra Robbins wrote that Via's skull was within the bowels of the tomb, along with the head of Geronimo. The problem is, Robbins retracted her statement a couple years later. She said she spoke with some bonesmen who told her the society was way too cheap to pay 25 grand for a relic, and that if there was a skull in the building, it probably wasn't Pancho Villa's. In truth, the most plausible answer is that Villa's skull is possessed by a noted Mexican official. See, the same night the grave was desecrated, a Mexican general landed a plane near the cemetery in Peral. It's possible that he, along with some conspirators, maybe even Holmdahl, robbed the grave. Perhaps they flew off into the night with the relic, leaving authorities none the wiser. The stolen by Americans theory is still a popular idea in Mexico, though. And Gustavo Ariano of the satirical column Ask a Mexican thinks he knows why the legend persists. He wrote, quote, It's a myth where everyone wins. Mexicans get to cry about Yankees desecrating their heroes. Gabachos can crow about pulling a fast one on the Mexicans. And everyone gets to fret anew about the creepy Bush family. But I get the feeling this theory's all skin and no bones. In 1976, President Luis Echeverria decided what was left of Villa's body belonged at Monumento a la Revolución, a landmark commemorating the Mexican Revolution in Mexico City. And so, 53 years after his assassination, Villa finally got a proper ceremony, complete with government officials, family members, and soldiers, all paying their respects. Villa is a man of legend, loved by the poor and reviled by the rich and powerful. He inspired tall tales, myths, and conspiracy theories. That's why the truth of his life is so hard to pin down, especially in the fog of war. But to his supporters, the reality isn't as important as the fable. As author and historian Haldine Brady wrote, in Mexican folklore, his ghost always appears minus his head, or with it in his arms. The spirit doesn't appear before Americans, though, for fear they'll steal his loot. But he will show up for the downtrodden. For even in death, he promised to guard and protect them. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify podcasts for free on Spotify. Do you have a personal relationship to the stories we tell? Send us a short audio recording telling your story to conspiracystories at spotify.com. We're here with a new episode every Wednesday. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify podcast. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash. 
with Nick Johnson as our head of production and Spencer Howard as our post-production supervisor. Ryan O'Leary-Jones is our supervising editor and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Ben Caro, edited by Wendy Sabroso and Lori Marinelli, fact-checked by Cheyenne Lopez, researched by Sapphire Williams, produced by Joshua Kern, with sound design by Alex Button. Our hosts are Molly Brandenburg and me, Carter Roy. 